When Saul has his interaction with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Ananias is called to go out to him and to, uh, to teach him the gospel, uh, there's some trepidation there and a little bit of hesitation on Ananias' part because he knows that Saul is someone with a track record. Uh, he's someone with a history, and that history isn't too good towards the disciples. He has the authority of the high priest to bring them bound into prison. He has uh, approved of and cast his lot against those in the hopes of them being executed. He has stood there at the stoning of Stephen. He's someone who as much as you can oppose Christianity, he opposed it. And then Ananias is told to go to him, and Ananias is, is you know, hesitant about that. But the Lord speaks with them, and I want to read a passage with you uh, that I think is a good introduction to uh, what Paul's mission is all about. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, in verse 15, this is what the Lord says about basically Paul's mission. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and uh, kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All right, so if you just break that uh, little, uh, you know, that uh, job description down, what he's supposed to do is to be a chosen instrument for God. He is supposed to bear his name to Gentiles to kings and to the sons of Israel. There's three different groups mentioned there. Gentiles, kings, sons of Israel. And he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's going to suffer. And he's going to uh, be opposed as he does this. The lesson this morning from Acts chapters 13 and 14 is a really good uh, demonstration of Paul launching into this mission. Uh, he goes and he teaches the gospel to uh, he bears the name of Jesus to the sons of Israel and to Gentiles, and he suffers tremendously. Uh, he will then go on towards the end of the book of Acts to start appearing before kings. In fact, there's going to be a couple of them that he appears before. So there are a couple of verses in Acts that are good summary statements of what the book of Acts is going to do. One of them is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which says to the, the disciples there, Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses, uh, and uh, you will go basically... Uh, from Ju Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the world, uh, that's where you are going to be my witnesses. And you can follow Acts, and it follows that geographical timeline. When you get to this passage right here, really, once you get to Acts 13, you see a lot less about Peter and a lot less about the other disciples, and it's a lot more focused on Acts. Uh, I, mean, I mean, on Paul. Paul is the main focus of Acts pretty much from that point to the end of the book. And if you want a good summary statement of what Paul is going to be doing in those chapters, it's this verse right here. He is a chosen instrument of God, and he's going to be bearing the name of Jesus to Gentiles, to kings, to the sons of Israel, and he will suffer every step of the way. Um, what we talked about this morning was how that suffering uh, was met by people who opposed the grand vision and mission of God, and yet Paul put that mission above himself. Paul was willing to keep pushing and pressing forward even when there were a million reasons not to, even when everyone was lined up against him and everyone was opposed to him, even when there was challenge after challenge, even when he had uh, magicians and false prophets standing before him, even when he had to leave because of persecution, even when people tried to stone him, even when people did stone him, drag him out of the city and leave him for dead, he got up and kept on preaching. It's amazing to study this man's life and to see what he did, and we're only just getting started. As you continue to go through Acts, he continues to suffer. He is beaten more. He's thrown in prison. He's shipwrecked. He ends up for, I mean, he, he is for the last 
uh, you know, 10 chapters or so of, uh, or maybe eight chapters of Acts, he is arrested and he's going from trial to trial. And it's a story about a man's suffering and yet a man who is so committed to the Lord that he will not give up through that suffering. I love that we have the book of Acts because as you read the letters of Paul, you can with many of them, fit them into that storyline. And you can see where he was and what he's enduring at the time that he's writing a certain letter. And it just makes them come to life. And it makes Paul as a person come to life. And it's, it's he, he's an incredible example in many ways. And what we're going to do tonight is... Um, pretty much what we've done the last couple of Sunday nights. So we've been covering Acts in some pretty big chunks on Sunday morning. That means a lot gets missed. And one of the things that we have not been doing on Sunday mornings is spending a lot of time looking at the sermons or the lessons that are preached in Acts. So we, we talked about uh, Stephen, but we didn't really study what Stephen preached. We did that on Sunday night two weeks ago. And then last week we talked about Cornelius and Peter going to the Gentiles, but we didn't talk a lot about what Cornelius uh, was told by Peter, but we did that last Sunday night. Tonight uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Acts chapter 13. Uh, Paul preaches a sermon, and this is Paul's sermon that we have in Acts uh, 13, and we haven't really seen Paul preach yet in Acts. Uh, we've seen quite a few times that Peter has preached, and we've seen um, uh, Stephen have a pretty lengthy lesson, but now we're going to get introduced to the preaching of Paul, and it's going to happen at a synagogue, uh, a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, and what we're going to do is kind of walk through that lesson and uh, see some of the things that we can learn from it. I think there are a number of things that you can learn from looking at the specific information in the lessons. But then also, I think there are things you can learn about looking at the overall approach of the lessons. Uh, and I've tried to point this out a little bit each week, but Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches there on the day of Pentecost. And you have all of these Jews from all over the world who are gathered together in Jerusalem. And uh, he preaches a sermon to them that begins with tongue speaking. And the first thing he does is he takes the events of that day and he supports them with a passage from the Old Testament, from Joel 2, to show that what's happening before you is not just some strange, you know, out-of-nowhere circumstance. It's something that's been in the mind of God for a long time, and things have been building towards this for a long time. And God is going to pour forth his Spirit on all flesh. And right here today, you're getting a glimpse of that, and it's eventually going to spread even beyond that. Uh, when you get to Cornelius, you see it spreading from, you know, to, to Gentile flesh. And the Spirit of God is going to, going to spread throughout the world. Uh, that's what Peter tells them in Acts 2. But notice he does so from Joel 2. Then he begins talking about the life of Jesus, and then he uh, gives a pretty lengthy quotation from Psalm 16. And uh, he ends up using the Old Testament quite a bit in his teaching about, uh, about Jesus. He uses the life of Jesus, and he plugs it right into the story of the Old Testament in several passages from the Old Testament. When you look at Acts chapter 7, Stephen pretty much just walks you from Genesis through Exodus, you know, through the story of, uh, of the founding of Israel. He gets into the kings, and then he takes you to Jesus, and he notices that there's a recurring pattern that takes place in the history of Israel. And that pattern is that God chooses a prophet to save his people, and the people reject that prophet, yet often through their rejection of that prophet, God is still able to bring about their salvation. It's like, like Joseph with his brothers. Joseph's brothers reject him as their brother, and they want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they end up sending him off as a slave. 
But because they did that, he ends up in Egypt. He ends up through some divine revelation, interpreting some dreams. He knows the future. He prepares Egypt for a drought. Then when the drought hits, his brothers and many, many people are in dire need. And the only place they can go for salvation is Egypt. And the only reason Egypt can provide the salvation is because their brother was sold there. And all of a sudden you find out that like the story goes full circle. The one they rejected and sent away ends up being the one who saved them. And if they had not rejected him and sent him away, he wouldn't have been there to save them. And so God has a way of, of bringing about salvation in the unlikeliest of ways, but often, stunningly, through the hard-heartedness of the people that he's trying to save. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was rejected and crucified, and yet God used the crucifixion of Jesus to be our means of forgiveness of sins, to overcome and conquer the powers of darkness in this world, and to be a source of light and salvation to mankind. And so the whole understanding of Jesus in Acts chapter 7 is presented as the fulfillment or as uh, the, the pattern that you can follow throughout the entire Old Testament that leads you to Jesus. The reason that's important when we're talking about sermon approach is because both of those lessons were delivered to a Jewish audience who that would make a whole lot of sense to. Um, that sermon probably would mean a lot less if it were preached in Athens to a bunch of Greek philosophers. When you get to Acts chapter 10, Peter, the same guy who preached in Acts 2, is now preaching to a Gentile, Cornelius, and his lesson's quite different. Uh, his lesson to Cornelius is not saturated with quotations from the Old Testament, uh, even though uh, you know, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius just as it did the disciples. Uh, he, he doesn't there's no mention of him bringing up Joel 2 or anything like that. Uh, rather, it is about Jesus, and he tells what Jesus has, has done, and he tells about the salvation that's being offered through him. But the approach to the lesson is different. When Paul gets to Acts 17, he's going to go to Athens, and he's going to preach the, to a bunch of philosophers there. And he's not going to do so by starting in Genesis and walking through Exodus and going through the story of the Old Testament. He's actually going to quote Greek philosophers while he's there. And he's going to quote, uh, he's, he's going to start the lesson off actually by using uh, an illustration from their idols. Uh, he, he sees that there is an idol to an unknown God. And he says, oh, so there was, they're willing to admit there's a God they don't know about. Wonderful. Uh, I'm here just in time. I can tell you all about him. And, uh, and so like what Paul does is he uses their culture and their environment and even their literature to teach them the gospel of Jesus. And it's amazing the number of ways and avenues through which Jesus can be preached to people of all sorts. So not only does Acts demonstrate the gospel is for everybody, Acts demonstrates that there are many ways that the gospel could be presented. And it's the same truth. It's not like the, you know, Jesus is the Son of God in one of these lessons and not in another one of these lessons. They're presenting the same truths about Jesus, about his death and resurrection and the salvation that God offers. But they're doing so in such a way that each audience can relate to it. And I, I think that calls us to be aware of the culture that we live in, to be aware of the culture around us, and to try as best we can to be people who speak as though we are always speaking with grace and that our speech is seasoned with salt so that we can know how to answer wisely to each person who asks us. And like, I, I think we should make sure that uh, we don't just assume the world around us 
will always come running to us for our answers. But sometimes we have to be able to know them and we have to be able to address them and meet their perceived needs uh, with the message of Jesus. And, uh, and Paul's a pretty excellent example of that. Once we start getting into Paul's lessons, you see what he's talking about when he says, to the Jew, I become as a Jew. And uh, to the one without the law, as one without the law. And as one with law, as the one with law. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul has a way of saying, you know, we, I think we live in a culture where our identity seems to be like the most important thing in the world. And Paul seems to think that other people's identities matter too. Uh, what I mean is he's willing to like adapt himself to meet the needs of others. It tells me he's not really the type of person who thinks the whole world should adapt to him, but rather he's willing to adapt to others. And again, he's not changing the truth for one person, but not for another person, but he is developing an awareness of the people who are around him and what the world around him is like and who his audience is. And I think that's extraordinarily important. And you can see it in the lesson here in Acts chapter 13. So uh, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his first missionary journey. He goes to Pisidian Antioch, um, and verse 14 says, Going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Okay, so Paul goes into the synagogue and he sits down. I think that's something Paul did regularly. In fact, we're told that that's his custom. Uh, Paul still went to synagogue on Saturdays, and he often would use that as an opportunity. Here, it's really good, uh, it's really easy for him to have the opportunity because he's actually invited to be the speaker. Um, so, all right, so he goes to a synagogue, and here's basically a brief summary of what synagogue stuff is all about. Synagogue, I guess it's a word that we don't use too much today, and we might not know uh, exactly what a, what a synagogue was in the first century. And there's a lot more you can go into than what I'll say, but basically, worship in Israel was location-specific. What I mean is, you were not allowed to just build an altar in the old place you wanted and offer up a sacrifice to God. If you're not a priest, and if you're not uh, at the place where the Lord has chosen from among the tribes for his name to dwell, that's the phrase that reoccurs in Deuteronomy a lot, then you couldn't just build up your own altar and do whatever you wanted to there. In fact, there's a, there's a king named Saul who he is waiting for Samuel to come to him because there's a battle about to take place and he wants to offer up sacrifice to God before the battle to kind of get God on their side. And what's happening is as his army is sitting there waiting for a battle, Samuel's not there yet. He's not there yet to offer the sacrifice. And so they're waiting and they're waiting. And during this waiting, it seems like they're kind of putting off getting God's blessing on them. And the other army is getting more and more encouraged. And Saul's army is starting to dwindle and grow in fear. And so Saul eventually decides, okay, I'm just going to do this. And he ends up offering sacrifice to God, an act of worship on behalf of uh, his army in the hopes that they would be successful in battle. And that was the wrong decision. 
uh, he ends up finding out that he's not going to be able to keep his throne and his kingdom because of that. Uh, that is not what you do in that situation. You do not take sacrifice into your own hands, and you do not offer sacrifice any old place you want to, and to do it that way. That was something that uh, was, was outside the lines of what God wanted in worship. Um, another example is in uh, the very end of the book of Joshua. So you have, uh, like, basically... Of the 12 of the there's 13 tribes. We often talk about the 12 tribes. 12 of them had specific pieces of land. The 13th uh, was uh, the tribe of Levi and uh, they had cities within the 12. And so, I mean, if you remember, Jacob had 12 sons. But there is no tribe of Joseph, right? Joseph had two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they both became tribes. So you have like the 11 brothers and then the two grandsons, uh, and that's how you get the 13. And so 12 of them get these pieces of land, uh, but then one of them has a bunch of cities within the land. And so, so there's technically 13 different tribes. And two and a half of them were on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and all the others were on the western side. So there was like a natural boundary that was just right in the middle of Israel. And that boundary concerned some of those who were on the eastern side because they thought, I don't want, I don't want my sons to grow up and to forget that we have a connection to the people on the other side of this river. And so what we want to do is build some sort of monument that would remind our children and our grandchildren that we're all one people. And this river isn't dividing us. This river, though it's in the middle of us, it doesn't divide us. We want them to know that we still worship the same God as them. And so what they end up doing is they build a monument. They build a big, huge altar. And that altar is a reminder that the God that is worshipped and sacrificed in Jerusalem on the other side of that river is the same God that we worship and sacrifice uh, to here. Now, when those on the western side hear about that big, huge altar, they get furious and very alarmed because they think, uh-oh, those guys are starting to build their own altars. Like, they don't even need to come over here anymore. And they're starting to, to they're going to start worshiping uh, and, and offering sacrifice in any old place that they want to. And, and they get really concerned. And so they start getting their army together. And they're going to go destroy those other tribes, which is not a good solution to the problem, but that's what they're doing. And, uh, and so then there ends up being a meeting where they all talk about it. And what the tribes to the east say is, uh, no, no, we are not using this altar to offer sacrifice on. This altar is simply uh, you know, a, a demonstration or a monument. It's like a statue. It's just, it's just a reminder. So we're going to use it to teach our kids, but we won't offer sacrifice on it. And, uh, and why? Well, because you weren't supposed to just build your own altars and offer sacrifice in the old place that you wanted to. There were a lot of requirements about it. Even when Jesus talks with the woman at, uh, at the well in John chapter 4, she brings up the disagreement between where you're supposed to offer your sacrifice. You know, our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but your father said you have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You know, for Christians, that's kind of a weird debate because where do we worship? I mean, you can worship in a church building, but we also know you can worship in your car on the way to the church building. You can worship, uh, you know, on a mountaintop on a Tuesday at 1 a.m. if you wanted to. I mean, like, like, it's not really time and location specific. Now, there are times and places you should gather with the church, and you should do that on the first day of the week, but there are also other times where you're, you're free to worship as you, as you see fit. Um, that's not really how it was in Israel. And so, during the Babylonian captivity, 
All right. When the children of Israel, when their home is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and they're brought to Babylon and have to live there, it's probably about that time that you start having the formulation of what are called synagogues. And a synagogue is a way of growing closer to God, of learning more about the Bible and Torah and having fellowship and gathering with people and saying prayers, where you grow closer and you learn more, but it's not the same as what would happen at the temple. At the temple, there would be Levitical priests in their robes, they'd offer sacrifice, there would be musical instruments, there would be all of that stuff going on. That wasn't happening at the synagogues. The synagogues, uh, there would probably be a, a recitation of the Shema, where everyone would say uh, that the Shema is a passage in Deuteronomy 6, really important to uh, basically... Uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Uh, that passage right there, they would recite that. There would be prayers that were offered to God at the beginning. And they also had uh, their scriptures kind of in lectionary form where there would be certain readings uh, on different Sabbath days. And they would take you through the Torah, which is the law of Moses, and the prophets. And uh, so there would be a reading from the law and a reading from the prophets. And then there would be some sort of... Uh, uh, discussion or, or an encouragement that came from that reading. And uh, then they would offer more prayers and then it, then it would come to a close. I mean, in a lot of ways, the worship at the synagogue, is the, our worship that we offer on Sundays is much more similar to synagogue worship than to Levitical priestly temple worship. Um, we don't do a lot of what they did at the temple but we do pretty much everything they did at the synagogue. Uh, but we kind of put that around a meal, the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and so it, it's, it's interesting how, how that kind of all works out. But having said all of that, uh, at the synagogue, there would be a reading of the law and then someone would get up and teach on it. Jesus was given the opportunity to do this. Jesus went to a synagogue in, in the early chapters of Luke and uh, after a reading from Isaiah, he stood up and he gave his explanation of it, which is today this reading is fulfilled in your hearing. And, uh, and uh, people were, were kind of amazed that he had said that. Uh, but the, I think it was Isaiah 61 that was read. But, but what you have there is you have this, the reading and then the explanation of it. Well, when Paul arrives at a synagogue, which is a way of worshiping God away from Jerusalem, though it's not temple worship, it is a way of studying and learning more about him and a gathering together with your community. Verse 15, he goes and he joins the synagogue that's there in uh, Antioch. In verse 15, it says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, uh, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said. So now we're about to get his sermon in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch to a Jewish audience. And he's going to start off um, basically with a very summarized um, and strategic retelling of the history of Israel, kind of like uh, Stephen did, only he's going to summarize it in some different ways because he's going to make some different points. But it is interesting how these sermons, they often start kind of walking through some of the story of the Old Testament and showing, well, I think what Paul's going to do, really in verses 16 through 25, is show how Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. Jesus is what the story of Israel has been building towards, and he is the, the highest uh, point of the story of Israel. So, beginning of verse 16, Paul says, Men of Israel, 
And you who fear God, listen. Uh, men of Israel are going to be the, the Jews that are there. Those who fear God are going to be probably the proselytes, uh, Gentiles who have become o- obedient to Torah and have become followers of the God of Israel. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he starts off in Exodus 1. Uh, and the God who chose our fathers, which uh, that could be Genesis, you know, chose, choosing our fathers is going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he chose them and then he made them great in the land of Egypt. Uh, but remember right there what he says about the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Or the father is going to come back up again later. So remember them here at the first line of the lesson. But he made the people great during their stand, uh, stay in Egypt. Uh, they grew in number. They became this massive multitude. And he says, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. Um, that is going to be basically a very quick summary of Exodus 1 through like 12. You know, he, they get out of Egypt. And uh, then you uh, see in verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's going to be uh, pretty much your book of Numbers, uh, some of the end of Exodus. Uh, but your book of Numbers is going to tell those stories of God putting up with them in the wilderness. Then verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, uh, all of which took about 450 years. So that's going to be your book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua begins with the destruction of the Canaanites and all the battles and wars that took place there. And then it ends with the distribution of the land. Uh, and you find out, you know, like all the land that everyone gets and which tribe gets what and which cities the Levites get and all of that stuff. So he's kind of just going through the story. Makes a quick reference to Genesis by talking about the fathers. He goes through Exodus, Numbers, uh, Joshua. And then notice where he goes to next, verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges. All right, that's your book of Judges, until Samuel. Well, that's going to get you into the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So that's going to be the book of 1 uh, Samuel. And it says, and after he had removed him, by the way, the story that I told about Saul was one of the uh, factors that led to his removal as king. There, there were others that uh, came also. But after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom I have te- uh, he testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. So now we get to King David, and that's going to take you through uh, 2 Samuel. You're going to get uh, the reign of David right there. So he's kind of summarized a large portion of the story of Israel very quickly, but he gets you to King David and how like all of this has been building up to King David. The people in need during uh, the Egypt, the, the time period of the judges where uh, the people were wicked, the wilderness where the people were wicked, they get their first King Saul and he ends up being wicked. And then they finally get David and they find out like with this guy, we have someone after God's own heart. It's like there's hope with David. And so he mentions David, and you would think perhaps David is going to be the climax of the story. David is what all of it has been building to. He's this king after God's own heart. But uh, you end up finding David doesn't end up being uh, as great as as everyone had hoped he would be. But you uh, keep reading in verse 23, it says, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. The story continues after David, and it's actually one of David in that line of kings, one of his descendants, 
where Israel's Savior is going to come from. And it's going to come because of a promise, he says. Uh, there are a number of promises that, uh, that I think are relevant to the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. One of them is the promise made to Abraham uh, about uh, from your seed, uh, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Another one that's really important is a promise that is made to David about uh, his son, where God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, there's this idea that that David's throne would continue on. And one of the things that's really difficult about that promise is remember Babylonian captivity where the synagogues had to start and all of the, like, Jerusalem was destroyed? Well, the monarchy and the, the line of David as kings, that was destroyed also. You didn't have kings in Israel uh, in the line of David during Babylonian captivity. They had pagan kings as their kings. And so there was this, this confusion about well, didn't God say that he was going to establish someone in the line of David forever? And here we look around us and there's no king in the line of David. As a matter of fact, Rome is our king. And that's not. And then Rome appointed Herod to be our king. And that's, that's not what God had promised. That's not what we had hoped for. So the idea was, did God like abandon his promise? Did he give up on us? Did he forget about it? Uh, did we lose that? Like, there's a lot of confusion about that. Which is why it's very significant that uh, Jesus comes along from the line of David, establishing and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so, verse 24, he says, after John, now, we, now we're in John the Baptist. He, he keeps telling the story to the point of the prophet John. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance for all the people of Israel. And while John was uh, completing his course, he kept saying... What do you suppose I am? I'm not he. And behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So it gets you to John the Baptist. And even John the Baptist is just this, not, you know, entirely unworthy to be considered you know, on the same level as Jesus. He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of one who's coming after him. So as Jesus is introduced, we kind of find out that he's going to be the one that all of these great men... Are, are merely pointing to, and Jesus is going to be the reality who fulfills the hopes of Israel and is the ultimate climax of the story. So after getting us through the story of Israel to Jesus, then Paul, in verse 26, he kind of redirects the lesson. Uh, what we've seen so far is that Jesus is the ultimate climax of the story that has been building to this whole time. Now we're going to see the significance of what Jesus did, particularly his resurrection, is going to be the central focus of this uh, part of Paul's lesson. So he, he starts in verse 26, brethren. So he kind of point two. Uh, he, he does, whenever you stop your lesson and say, all right, now brethren, there's kind of a change in, in focus right here. He says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those who, are, uh, who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled uh, these by condemning him. So here's what he's saying. The rulers in Israel, the people who, by the way, gather every week and they open up the prophets and they read the prophets, just like you're doing right now. They read the prophets weekly and still missed that they were fulfilling the words of those prophets. They were fulfilling what the prophets had said by rejecting the one that God was bringing to them, but ultimately through that rejection, bringing about the salvation uh, for Israel, but then also salvation for the whole world. And it says in verse 28, 
And though they found no ground for putting him to death, meaning Jesus wasn't guilty of anything, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, that's the reference to the prophets, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So they, the prophets have been guiding this story, and those who were supposed to be the experts in the prophets were the ones who fulfilled it and lived it out. Jesus is then crucified, and he's laid in a tomb, and verse 30 changes everything. But God raised him from the dead. Um, so he kind of started off walking through the story of the Old Testament, and then he gets to where he starts with John the Baptist, and he begins to kind of walk through the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke is part one to Acts, and he does a quick summary of Luke, but he starts with John the Baptist. He even quotes some of the things that John the Baptist says earlier in Luke, and he quotes them here in this lesson as he brings you to Jesus, and then ultimately to the crucifixion and to the resurrection of Jesus. And then he's going to connect that story back to what the prophets have all been about. And so, uh, verse 31 goes on to talk about what Jesus did. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's going to be Luke 24. Um, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Pay attention to that phrase, witnesses to the people. Um, then verse 32 says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised Jesus. Um, so a couple of things happen in this passage right here. One is uh, he begins to tell them that we are preaching to you the good news, the gospel. But he says it's the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Remember all the way back he started this whole lesson in verse 17 by saying the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made a great people out of them. Their fathers were chosen and they were promised certain things. And throughout this whole summary of, of the and retelling of the story of Israel, we finally get to the fulfillment of those promises. And it says that the promises were made to our fathers, but verse 33 says God has fulfilled these promises to our children. Uh, there's going to be still a future in these promises. Promises like God is going to bring about blessing to the whole world through the seed of Abraham. Promises like there's going to be someone who sits on the throne of David, and that throne is going to endure. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises, vindicated by God through the resurrection. The cross didn't mean Jesus lost and that he wasn't the true king. The cross, because of the resurrection, actually ended up showing that he was the faithful martyr who was rejected by men but chosen by God and king forevermore. And so Jesus ends up becoming uh, the, the true king, and they are witnesses of these things. And so then he's going to quote three rapid-fire passages from the Old Testament uh, to help demonstrate his point. In verse 33 uh, through 35, verse 33 says, So God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. And by the way, this is just something I think is neat. But that's like the only time you find out uh, like some of the numbering. Uh, you know, it's also our second psalm, which is in, you know, which is kind of cool. Uh, so like you'll never see Paul say in Isaiah chapter 11, because the chapters and the verses, they, they, those are a long time yet to come. But it does seem that the psalms were, were numbered in some ways. And, uh, and right here we find out that the second psalm for them is, is the second psalm for us. So, so at least up to two, it's ordered the same way at this point. Uh, and it probably is, is pretty close to what ours is. Uh, 
uh, now uh, at this point. But anyway, all that is to say, he calls it the second psalm, which I think is interesting. The second psalm is inauguration day. When you read Psalm 2, it is about how all of these nations around and all of the Gentiles, they're scheming and they're plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. But God has installed his king upon Zion. And God says that you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that king will not be conquered by uh, the, the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite will happen. Uh, his king will be successful and his king will rule even the Gentiles. And so as you read Psalm 2, it's this picture of God choosing his king. And I believe that Paul is seeing Resurrection Day is kind of like that. It's God choosing his king. And all of the nations who thought that they could conquer God and his anointed one, like Rome, for example, who crucified God's holy one, find out on that day, no, God has installed his king and there is no one who's going to conquer him. And there's no one who can overcome him. And because of that, the message is then going to spread forth. And there are going to be people from all of the nations who end up worshiping and glorifying that king as, as Lord and God of the whole world. And so you're going to see Psalm 2 fulfilled in interesting and in unexpected ways through Jesus, the one who is truly God's son. And then you get to uh, verse 35, or sorry, verse 34 and it says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, uh, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Uh, now that's an interesting passage that comes from uh, Isaiah 55. And I want you to turn with me quickly to Isaiah 55. Um, it is less clear to see it in our Bibles because, well, because when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament... Often, they're quoting a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Um, what we read when we read the Old Testament is uh, a Hebrew, uh, just, just the Hebrew text. It's not a translation. It's just the Hebrew. Um, and so there are a few things that are occasionally different between the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Just like you can pick up different English translations and you could see even among English translations, there are going to be differences occasionally that appear. There are differences that occasionally appear between the Hebrew and the Greek translation. And so sometimes when you're reading a quotation from the Old Testament in your New Testament, and then you go back and you read that in the Old Testament, it can, it can look a little bit different or it can sound a little bit different. Um, that's going to happen from time to time. Right here is one of those passages. But what I want to do is look at kind of what Isaiah 55 is about and see how that becomes a really significant place for Paul to draw from as he's teaching about Jesus. Isaiah 55 is an invitation to all of those who, it doesn't matter if you have no money, it doesn't matter whether you have uh, no food, you are welcome and invited to the feast that God is offering you. Isaiah 55 and verse 1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come anyway. <laughs> come, buy and eat. Come, buy milk and wine without money and without cost. It's like, I'd love to go to that feast that the king is throwing, but I don't have any money. Well, come anyway. Come, buy milk, buy wine, feast, enjoy. He says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what do not satisfy? Uh, you know, why would you spend your money on things that don't matter when you have a feast that's right there available for you? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. 
So there's a message being offered of life. And he says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. An everlasting covenant. There was a covenant promised to David. Uh, and it was a covenant that they thought would, would endure forever. But then there's also promises of, of a new and an everlasting covenant. It's, that in some ways is going to be different than that previous covenant. And what he says is, uh, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Uh, that's, that's the part that Paul uses when he, when he quotes this in, in, uh, chapter, uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 13. But then notice verse 4. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A witness to the peoples. If I remember Paul's uh, sermon there in Acts 13, he says, The very ones who Jesus was with after the resurrection are now his witnesses to the people. Kind of sounds like that is a little bit coming from uh, Isaiah 55 also. And he says uh, in verse 5, Behold, you will call on a nation who you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The word nation is the same word as Gentile. And what he's showing is there's an invitation here. Come. If you don't have enough food or, or, or money, come anyway. Uh, you're invited and you'll find life at the table of God. And as you do so, he will give you the blessings that were promised to David. And these blessings that were promised to David will allow you to be his witnesses to the people, and you'll be able to call out on these nations, and the nations will come running to you. That's kind of an important idea considering the mission of Paul, right? Paul is going to the nations, being a witness to the people, and proclaiming the covenant that God has, has under Jesus, the son of David. Then people are invited to it, and people are welcome to the table of God. There's a lot going on there that Paul is drawing upon as he continues to teach and go through this lesson. When you get to verse 35 of Acts 13, he says, Therefore... He also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's from Psalm 16, and that's actually the same passage that Peter quoted in Acts 2. Peter quoted a passage about the resurrection from a passage that no one thought was about the resurrection. Uh, and he says that there's this reference to God not allowing his Holy One to undergo decay. What happens when you die and you're buried? Well, your, your body begins to decay. But his Holy One will not undergo decay. And the reason why, Peter says, is that God raised him up. And we know that this isn't about David, even though the psalm is attributed to David, because David's tomb is still there and his, under, his body's decayed. So it's not David this is about. Someone was buried in a tomb, but that tomb is empty, and that person didn't undergo decay. And that's what Paul is about to proclaim. He says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God with his own generation... He fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And so Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the good things promised to David because David died and fell asleep, but Jesus lives to be a king in the line of David henceforth and forevermore. And so there's something we ought to do because of that. And that's where he begins to draw the conclusion of his synagogue sermon in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Uh, he, again, uh, kind of like verse 26, when he stops and says, Brethren, here he says, Now, brethren, listen. 
Through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And uh, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. There are a lot of people there ready to worship in a synagogue looking for hope and forgiveness and freedom in a source that will not give it to them. But Paul gets up there to speak on the law and the prophets and to show how everything he's saying is consistent with the law and the prophets, but the things that he's saying are actually that which fulfill the law and the prophets and will bring to you the freedom and the forgiveness that you've been longing for, and it's available. You're invited to the feast. You're welcome to the table with God. You're welcome to the the forgiveness and the salvation and the freedom that's available in Jesus Christ, and you should take it. You should listen to it. There are consequences if you don't. And that's the note that the uh, lesson ends on. Verse 40 through uh, 41, he ends with another quotation from the Old Testament. He says, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1. And this is a passage about uh, Babylon coming in to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, And he says, something's going to happen here, and it's not going to be good. And the scoffers and the mockers, they're not even going to be able to believe what's going to take place. People who disbelieve will face the wrath that, uh, that they don't even believe is coming. Uh, verse 41, Behold, you scoffers, marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Uh, you can accept this message of life and salvation, or you can continue to reject it in the same way that the scoffers before you did, and it ultimately led to their destruction. Now, Paul says this, and the people are amazed at his teaching. Uh, The response is extremely positive. Uh, People want to keep hearing him. Uh, People want to to hear more about this. Uh, It says many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes, they followed Paul and Barnabas, and uh, like they, they want to hear more. So he shows up the next week, and that's when everything goes awry. Uh, the next week is when he ends up, uh, you know, angering people and people get jealous and then people start attacking him and the challenges start coming the next week. And so Paul ends up saying in verse 46 that we are turning to the Gentiles. Um, a lot of his lessons from this point forward uh, are going to be more to a Gentile audience. And we'll see some of the different ways that he, that he goes about teaching that. But a few things I think that are essential to walk away from uh, from this lesson right here are that Paul varies his approach to teaching the gospel depending on who he is teaching the gospel. Uh, Number two, that Paul sees Jesus not as the beginning of a new story, but as the fulfillment and climax of a very old story that has been building to him from the earliest chapters of your Bible for a very long time. Even the promises made to David, they find their ultimate reality in Jesus himself. And that Jesus, number three, and this is probably going to be the key point of every sermon we read in the book of Acts, that Jesus' story doesn't end with the cross, but that there's an empty tomb three days later and he rose from the dead to be king forevermore. Uh, Because of that, we can have hope that the kingdom does continue on forever, that there is hope and salvation and life and forgiveness forever, that the exile and the punishment and the pain of sin that has been cast upon God's people is defeated and conquered, and there is life for God's people. And that's something that every single person, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, young or old, rich or poor, that's something that every person has access to, and you're invited to come. 
And if there's anyone here tonight who would like to uh, give Christ your life and baptism, name him as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away, we pray that you would let that be known. Come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.